I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 17th, 2019. Coming up, we'll discuss what went down and what didn't at the recent UN Climate Summit and implications for our future with two budding scientists who attended the meetings in Madrid. Tashiana Osborne is a PhD candidate in atmospheric and oceanic science at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and Sarah Whipple is a PhD candidate on ecology at Colorado State University. We begin with a brief look at some news and calendar items in science. Colorado has just been downgraded. The Environmental Protection Agency yesterday reclassified the state as a serious violator of federal air quality laws. It had been a moderate violator recently. The upshot of the climate of the change means that the state must now make more aggressive efforts to reduce air pollution. EPA Regional Administrator Greg Sopkin said in a statement that the agency based its action on monitoring data showing that ozone remains a serious problem in Denver and northern Front Range communities. The biggest source of ozone in this region is oil and gas operations. Ozone has led to many health ailments including asthma and other respiratory problems. Ozone occurs in Denver at higher rates than in many other U.S. cities and above the national norm, according to the National Lung Association. State officials must submit a plan within a year to the EPA for cutting ozone levels to meet health standards. On the local science calendar, if you've never seen brown bears in the wild or gazed at the northern lights, you can do both soon, at least virtually. From December 20th to the 28th, the Fisk Planetarium at CU Boulder will feature two planetarium shows. One's called River of Bears and the other Above Alaska. Travis Rector, an uh, astrophysicist, professor at the University of Alaska and a CU alumni, will present the shows. For more info, keyword search Fisk Planetarium at CU Boulder. And for all you Buzz Lightyear and Sheriff Woody and Lightning McQueen fans... Check out the Denver Museum of Nature and Science's interactive exhibition called The Science of Pixar. It explores science and technology behind some of the most beloved animated films and their characters. For more info, go to dmns.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Earlier this month, many nations' leaders, as well as scientists, environmental activists, companies, and others, at least 27,000 delegates in total, gathered in Madrid for a two-week UN climate summit. For a bit of context, the summit, called COP25, is rooted in the 2015 Paris Agreement. 
It's a blend of pledges from about 200 nations to dramatically slash their planet warming emissions to net zero emissions of carbon dioxide by 2050. Next year's meeting is when signatory nations will update their actual commitments. So note that these are voluntary vows. The countries are not legally bound to meet their emissions reductions targets, but they are supposed to report their progress to the UN. The stakes, needless to say, are huge. Yet political leadership is barely visible. In fact, last month, the Trump administration announced that it will begin to formally withdraw the U.S. from the International Accord. The move is the first step in a year-long process to leave the landmark agreement. And it's a response to the Obama administration's vow to reduce U.S. emissions to about 28% below 2005 levels by 2025. So, how did the recent summit go? Did nations actually make progress? And what else happened on the sidelines? Let's dive in and hear from our two guests, who just returned from COP25 in Madrid. They're joining us via phone. First, Tashiana Osborne is a PhD candidate in atmospheric and oceanic science at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. She joined us last month, just before the summit began. Welcome back to the show, Tashiana. Thank you so much, Susan. It's great to be back. And Sarah Whipple is a Ph.D. candidate in ecology at Colorado State University. Thanks so much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks, Susan. Looking forward to talking. So I want to dive in, since you're both students on your way to, well, probably working on your dissertation on your way to being full-fledged scientists there. Why did you go? Was it for research, for career development, for a chance to, well, shall we say, save the planet? Uh, let's start with you, Sarah. And this was your first, right? Um, this is actually my second COP. I was at COP24 oh, right. in Katowice um, last year. Um, so you had, like a month ago on the show, my advisor, Gillian Bowser. Right. Um, and so she got me involved and in, interested in um, international negotiations and climate policy. And so last year I went to COP24 as part of a class through um, Colorado State University looking at international negotiations. And then this year, I was acting as a teaching assistant for many other graduate and undergraduate students um, from CSU, as well as other institutions like Scripps, um, who were going to the COP um, to present on research and um, campus action that's um, revolving around climate change, climate change policy. Thanks, Sarah. I know we'll get to more of the student component, component which seemed uh, pretty strong there, actually. And Tashiana, this is your, well, was it third or fourth one that you've been to? Why, why did yeah. you go this time? So this is my third um, summit that I've been to, and I've just been really fortunate for the chance to go. Um, kind of similar to what Sarah said, the first couple times I went because I was always wanting to find a way to um, share science with broader audiences and see how it can help inform effective and responsible policy. This year I acted in a little bit more of a mentor, a uh, peer mentor role, and it was fantastic. Oh, that's great. Uh, so let's zoom right in. I want to have you bring listeners there. I mentioned before, from what I read, there were like 27,000 delegates, obviously hundreds of thousands of protesters in the streets and all. Just give a sense of what it was like there, and did it differ much from previous years in terms of like how large it was or the process? Sarah, how about you for Sarah Whipple? Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's always a sobering environment um, because everyone is trying to, you know, 
agree upon text and um, action that needs to occur. And then at the end of the day, when not as much gets accomplished as they would hope, um, you know, that frustrates many people in the civil society or um, coming from academic institutions, researchers. And when you like say that. civil society, um, they're, they're different tracks, right? They're sort of the main delegate, the national leader negotiation arena, and then the civil society where a lot of other stuff is happening, right? Correct, yeah. So civil society can be, you know, the average citizen. It can be someone um, coming in from, you know, the city of Madrid. They have a zone that's open to the public um, to go and see what, what um, you know, institutions are doing or nonprofits are doing. But it can also be um, non-governmental organizations such as researchers, um, like climate rights activists. Um, other nonprofits like WWF, things like that. Um, so civil society means a lot of um, different things. And Tashiana Osborne, could you give us a gist of the purpose of this year's COP, the so-called COP25, as opposed to, say, next year's, when it seems like there's more definitive um, goals set? Yeah, so a, a big piece of this, um, some were calling this the blue COP because we wanted to hear more of an inclusion of oceans in the conversation and kind of on the importance of observations of the ocean and atmosphere, um, and then also implementation of each country's nationally determined contribution, which is a written statement of each country's commitment to the, the Paris Agreement and kind of efforts involving reduction of greenhouse gases uh, or, or emissions of greenhouse gases and also... Um, Increasing resilience in a changing climate, and so they were hoping. We were hoping that they would establish an emissions trading system. Which, what ended up happening is they failed to compromise and reach a decision on financial mechanisms that would govern carbon trading. And a big part of that is because uh, when it comes to the discussions on financial and organizational mechanisms that actually target these goals. The developed nations, many of them, do not want to be held accountable. Mm. And so that's frustrating and kind of a, a big disconnect from what you hear in um, the civil society area where there are so many people dedicated to these efforts kind of on a ground-up, um, bottom-up approach. Sounds like a massive stalemate. I mean, th these talks, including on some kind of trading systems have been going on for so many years, and it seems that a lot of it does come down to developing countries saying, hey, you guys are the big polluters, you've got to help us do our share, and you're not doing that. Was that pretty much what happened, or were there, at least like with Canada, it seemed, and some of the island nations, there were some agreements, if not in a huge collective scale? Uh, Tashiana? I, I guess... I can say that from the negotiations that I was at, I, I attended quite a few that focused on um, the importance of observations of the ocean and atmosphere and trying to have that kind of written into text to move forward. Um, there was difficulty even coming to agreements on that, uh, but I did see that the negotiator for Canada stood up and kind of um, supported some of the small island developing states who 
We're talking about how, you know, they're really being hit hard by these extremes they're experiencing already, hurricanes and thinking about things like food and water security. Mm. Um, They're affecting these islands right now and a lot of other places, but they will and already are affecting some of the developed nations as well. So it was great to see Canada step up in that way in the the negotiations. And in another, um, India said... Uh, made a statement that was encouraging to hear. Um, They said, when will our brothers and sisters of developed nations actually take action to come together with developing nations? And what sort of response did they get? So Hmm. the response was, since it's a negotiation, you don't often see, uh, there's not like a visual response that you actually see. (laughs) Everyone's so diplomatic, and you want to kind of clap or nod or do something, and I had to really restrain myself (laughs) from doing that, but um, it was kind of, okay, who's next um, to speak, and there was some pushback from uh, countries in those negotiations, like the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, who may or may not have been trying to really just stall negotiations, um, or, or progress in negotiations, really. Sounds like there was probably a lot of around-the-clock pizza or the equivalent. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of extra meetings that were informal. They start to call them informal, informal meetings. Interesting. Um, (laughs) We'll get into some of the gist. Um, I wanted to get a sense of what were some personal and, and perhaps professional highlights for you. I know you had told me before, uh, Sarah Whipple, that it was pretty powerful seeing, say, Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish <laughs> activist there among the demonstrators, and there was a press conference and that or, or, or something else. What were some highlights for you, Sarah? Yeah, I would say um, definitely the high youth uh, presence at the COP this year was um, incredibly powerful and inspiring. Um, there was a large um, climate strike on the Friday um, of the first week of the COP that Greta led um, with the Fridays for Our Future um, team of students and children and whatnot. And they report that over 500,000 youth and um, parents and, you know, civil society members, um, people of Madrid showed up to this summit um, or this strike. And, you know, that's pretty powerful to have tons of people show up um, and strike for climate rights and um, climate action um, that we may or may not be seeing happening um, within the closed doors of the COP itself. And so I think all the mobilizing of these youth and um, their parents and their teachers and whatnot, um, that's really encouraging um, to see. And I hope that politicians and other negotiators start to to wake up a little bit and realize the emergency that everyone um, notices themselves. um, Wow, powerful. But they may not actually be acting on. And do you think the relative absence or certainly shortfall of national leadership has galvanized youth voices? I mean, Greta obviously is a poster child and and more than that, but so many more like like yourselves. And or (laughs) does it feel all the more depressing? 
Yeah, I think it really has encouraged, um, you know, more local governments and municipal authorities and students and researchers, academics to step up and, um, you know, showcase to people that may not be involved in climate science or may not be as aware that there are still um, actions and ways that we can um, reduce our impacts to um, the planet. And so... I think, um, you know, there is there is a lot of hope and the need for all this mobilization of um, voices is incredibly important and will continue to become even more important um, as inaction continues. Yeah, and Sarah, what, if any, was the response to this kind of activism, you know, 500,000 plus outside the main arena by sort of those in power? Behind the behind the closed yeah. doors, <laughs> I think that's that's really complicated because mm. um, the United Nations they have the right to um, so you can get like a protest or a strike um, you know approved within the closed doors of the COP and so a group of you know students or Indigenous people or women they can um, request from the Secretariat of the UN um, to have you know a protest inside the doors of the cops, and that can be approved or disapproved. And there was one circumstance where the protest um, that was supposedly approved beforehand um, became a bit more, um, not like violent, but definitely more upsetting and um, emotional than I think the Secretariat was anticipating, and so they actually shuffled many people and debadged many people from the conference. Um, mm. And so I think it's hard because, you know, the UN and COPS, they really want to have the civil society voice and they want to have the youth voice present. Um, but then it's also complicated when it comes to, you know, trying to advocate and trying to um, have a voice in that um, space and then, you know, things becoming maybe too emotional for negotiators to actually accept in which that voice is taken away. Yeah, I bet. Um, so very, very complicated. Uh, so for those who are joining us a bit late, you're listening to KGNU's Science Show, and we're discussing the recent Global Climate Summit and its implications with two budding scientists, Tashiana Osborne. She's a Ph.D. candidate at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. And we have Sarah Whipple, a Ph.D. candidate in ecology at Colorado State University. Um, Tashiana, I wanted to ask you, because you said, gee, this is the first year that was kind of dubbed blue cop where oceans plastics ocean pollution huge gamut made its way or was meant to make its way into negotiations into the text what are what are some highlights from that and anything that gives you uh, some hope that there'll actually be progress yeah so the idea is that um, we know that a lot of in, in a changing climate, the ocean will play a really major, important um, role in kind of the impacts that we end up seeing. And um, we, need, we need to be able to have uh, kind of systems in place to observe those changes and to support the observations of them. And so um, a lot, there was a lot of conversation that was really on how do we better understand these problems, and then how do we address them? 
And um, some of the countries were really concerned about data gaps, and they wanted statements on data gaps, um, which wasn't clearly defined. The, the mm. term data gaps wasn't clearly defined. So part of me thinks, was this something to kind of stall the negotiations? Or it, mm. in, on the other side, you know, it is a real genuine concern. And so um, there was some conversations about that, but uh, at the end of the day, it seems like there wasn't a whole lot of uh, progress made on the topic other than the fact that uh, all parties seem to be very supportive of the efforts of the scientists that have worked on the IPCC reports on climate change. And are there any specific action plans leading up to next year on this front, for instance, if everyone agrees, <coughs> whatever that may mean, but that there are data gaps and that they mm -hmm. need to do more before next year. Are there targets set for next year on the ocean front? So what it seems um, since the end of the COP, at least so far, is that they are still working to come to a compromise on the wording of, of this text, whether they welcome the results of some of the IPCC scientific reports and how they are going to... Uh, word things when it comes to kind of like a call to action on supporting observations. And so I hope, I do hope, and I am hopeful that this will become a bigger part of the conversation um, still next year. It's just things seem to be a little bit at a standstill, and I think if the countries that are requesting the, this statement on data gaps had that, I think they would be more willing to move forward in showing support. Interesting. Uh, Sarah Whipple, for you, so describe how do the sustainability development goals within the UN tie into this core goal of reducing global greenhouse gas emissions and climate change in general? And I ask you, Sarah, partly because you're focusing on biodiversity conservation, and that certainly seems one of the areas. Yeah, so um, the UN, they've had these different targets or sustainable development goals um, for quite some time. They were originally tar or, um, listed as the Millennium Development Goals, and those phased out um, after COP20 in Lima. And um, then it became the Sustainable Development Goals, which, like you said, are 17 targets. These range from um, reducing hunger and poverty to preserving biodiversity, um, on land, on ocean, and whatnot. And so many of the, um, the actions that the UN is trying to um, instill with the policy, whether it's in um, the Paris Agreement um, text or a gender action plan text, um, is all revolving around these target goals that they've set within the SDGs. Um, and these SDGs, they... This is the Sustainable Development Goals? SDGs? Correct. Okay. Yeah. The UN works on a lot of acronyms, so I apologize. Yep, indeed. Yeah, sustainable Development Goals. goals. Um, and these are, um, they're hoping to reach all their targets of these Sustainable Development Goals by 2030, um, in which then they'll probably, you know, have more Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and these are all just working towards equality, um, reducing, you know, climate change impacts, um, et cetera. So we've just got a couple more minutes left. I want to ask you both, uh, starting with you, Tashiana, if there's one thing that you are taking away from this summit and also want listeners to be brought in on, 
whether you're hopeful or not, or a particular action plan, you name it, something specific that you're taking away from this for your future and potentially all of our future? So one one big thing that I'm taking away is that as as people who are within this larger system, it's going to be crucial that we uh, we stand up for what we think is right and for what we know is going to help the people of this earth and the animals on it, as, the other animals on it as well. And so I think it's really important that we come together and we say we're watching. All of us have our eyes on our politicians. We're electing the people who lead and who um, go to these negotiations and kind of make these decisions. And so we're watching and we're holding them accountable. We can have a say by using our votes and putting pressure on representatives about these really monumental issues that are affecting our present and future. And the, one of the big things is we cannot forget those populations who are historically marginalized or left out of the conversation. They need to be included. Mm, thank you. And Sarah Whipple, a particular takeaway on your end? Yeah, I mean, I think Tashiana said it um, really well. I think, um, you know, it's frustrating because this was supposed to be the blue cop and the cop of ambition before um, the 2020 stock take or when um, countries were working. Wait, you called it the 2020 stock take. Just distill that a bit. Yeah, so the 2020 stock take is, um, 2020 is supposed to be the first year that countries update their nationally determined contributions or how they will reduce their impacts of um, climate change within their country. Mm-hmm. So um, they call this the global stock take. Um, and so a lot of the UN and developing countries, they were really um, pushing for countries such as the U.S. and China and Canada and, you know, developed countries to um, update their nationally determined contributions before this 2020 deadline. And while this didn't really happen because... Um, there were, you know, key countries that were unwilling to compromise. I think um, that the ambition and the voice of, like I mentioned before, the civil society, the youth, um, the indigenous people um, that Tashiana was saying um, have been previously marginalized, that influence and that ambition coming from those voices will only um, become even more prevalent and important to listen to. And so... You know, it's frustrating to see not the change not happening in those negotiations, but I think it does motivate um, the voices of others to step up and to really fight for what needs to happen um, in order to uh, make the change that we need to see. Well, thank you. Um, we'll return to some of these topics. There's so much we could dissect. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And Tashiana, thank you. Thank you, Susan. That was Tashiana Osborne. She's a Ph.D. candidate at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego, and Sarah Whipple, a Ph.D. candidate in ecology at Colorado State University. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is yours truly, Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. 
Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Michael Brecker. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.